Or could you go to hear all of this in one place, sitting in one seat, under one roof? It would cost you thousands and thousands of dollars to travel and hear all these individual messages and ministries and hallelujah thank you for all that you've done and POA for their logistical expertise getting all this done I'm going to read a verse of scripture you know you're always worried about somebody getting over on your stuff you have like six or eight people ahead of you, and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, they're going to go there. <laughs> so I chose a book that... <laughs> Nobody's going to go there. Now, this book is not... VBS material. It's not a series for the youth department. It's not going to be something your pastor will give you for preferred reading because the pages are hot to touch. The corners have been scorched and seared. And if you go there, you need to be very, very careful how you pick your steps. The book is called The Songs of Solomon. And it is a dangerous book. <laughs> if you pick a text, you need to read it and reread it. And even read around it. Because people tend to listen to your verse, then they read the one above it, and the one above it, and the one below it, and the one below it. And next thing you know, You're a YouTube guru, and uh, made a horrible mistake. So I've read around it and uh, haven't found any problem, really. Song of Solomon, the second chapter and the 15th verse. Glad to have my wife here, my precious wife, and my daughter, and son-in-law. Thank you for being here to support me. Song of Solomon. It's the only redeemable verse of Scripture in the whole book. <laughs> I mean, that you can read without any people getting on the edge of their seats. So just relax. I'm, I'm not going to go someplace. God will help me that I shouldn't go. God being my helper. Sister Osborne's praying for me. She's begged me not to go there and not to embarrass her. <clears throat> Song of Solomon, the second chapter, 15th verse. Take us the foxes. Then he defines which foxes you should take. He says the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes 
So for a few minutes, I will speak to you about little foxes and tender grapes. Pray and ask God to help us. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. Thank you for your grace that's sufficient for every need. I pray that you'll speak to us and through us this morning, dear God, for what we have heard. We are grateful and thankful for all that has come before me, Lord. Give us the grace and the understanding, the lips of a ready writer. Take from my mind any error. Give me nothing but the truth of God. For your praise and your glory, we ask it all. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I am of the opinion that the six verses of the Song of Songs describe a love affair between the Lord and his church, which is his bride. Not just a random love story that's been written by some love story guru of some kind. It's a love story, in my opinion, which is ever to be debated, but it is my opinion. I suspect I have a right to it. Uh, that it's about the church and his, uh, the Lord and his bride, which is the church. I don't know, Solomon must have got somewhat discombobulated or perhaps distracted in the heat of the moment. It would appear that he just randomly threw in a proverb about foxes and vines and tender grapes for no apparent reason. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know. You can, read, you, can, you can read the verse above that. Just leave that out and read the verse below it. It makes perfect sense. He doesn't need that. You know, It wouldn't appear that he needs that at least because it's a love story. And I don't know what foxes and vines and grapes have to do with a love story, a love song. But he put it in there. 1 Kings 4.32 said, concerning Solomon, he spake 3,000 proverbs. He spake them. He knew how to talk proverbial. So... I'm guessing that one just fell out when he was writing his song. You know, you got 3,000 of them on your mind, you know. So whether you're in the book of Proverbs or in the book of a song, one just fell out the corner of his mouth and he threw it in there, you know, just kind of for good luck, as it were. Because a proverb stands alone. It needs nothing without any context. It doesn't need a context. It needs no surrounding text to determine its meaning. It's complete within itself. It doesn't need any support from the verse before it or the verse after it, it is truth all contained within itself. It doesn't need any help to understand it. You don't have to know where it is or where it was or anything above it, below it, around it, or the story beginning or ending. It's just there by itself, and it just doesn't need any interpretation. So he just drops one of his 3,000 proverbs here in this love song. You can cut that verse out, and, and it doesn't hurt a thing. It doesn't hurt the meaning or distract from what he's trying to say. It doesn't throw the rhythm of the song off. It does nothing. So I'm uh, wondering, why did you put it in there? Because you can cut that verse out and put it about anywhere else in the Bible, and it works beautiful. But when you leave it where it's at, and try to make sense out of it, you wonder, what were you thinking? You know, <clears throat> what was on your mind at that moment that you let that little proverb slip out about foxes and vines and grapes? And it's a love song, for Pete's sake, whoever Pete is. It's, it's a love song that you need to stay with your love lines, you know. And you've gotten off on this fox deal, but as you thought, 
And one of his wives was Foxy. I don't know what his thinking was at the moment, but put that Fox deal in there and grapes and vines, you know. And it, 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 it works a lot of different places because a lot of little things tear up a lot of big things, you know. And uh, that's really what the Fox deal is about. It, it messes vines up and eats the tender grapes and uh, 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 just that kind of stuff. And uh, I mean, you can cut that out, put it over in Genesis, and it works very well, you know, that, that Adam traded paradise for a piece of fruit. You know, well, that would be good to put that there. Little foxes tear up a lot of beautiful things and mess things up. You could put it over there with, with uh, Esau trading his birthright for a pot of soup, you know, it'd work real good right there, you know, so you can cut it out of there and put it in a lot of places, you know, it just fits perfect. What's, what's difficult to do this is to make it work where he put it. Oh, it's just in this, in this, in this love story, in this love song, the eight chapters to the book of the Song of Solomon, and there are six verses to his song. So it's about all song, you know, it's not a lot of riffraff in there, or fillers in there, except this fox deal. And try to give it meaning in the context of a love song where it appears to be so inappropriate where he put it at. But when you know, I guess, 3,000 of them, now and then one just slips out, you know, and you just forget whether you're in Proverbs or whether you're in the Song of Solomon. So he put that little proverb in there. And I, I was wondering what he was thinking, and so that's really what gave birth to this message because... I've come to believe that Solomon knew exactly what he was doing and put it exactly where it needed to be to give impact to the whole context of the song, not just to what was above it and what was below it. Allow me to leave my time. I don't need your allowance, really, because I'm going to leave it anyway, but I'm going to leave my context for a moment and my text and try to establish a a, 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 this song as a window in the heart of God. You know, some might think that because of the greatness and majesty of God, that man could, with his finite mind and temporal understanding, could never look inside or ever comprehend the heart of the eternal God. Who could ever know what he had on his mind or how God was feeling about things or what was the essential part of his character? How would you know what his internal thoughts were? What are the vitals of God? What is about God's love and his affections? If I could just look into his heart, maybe I could see some things to know something about him. Well, Jesus gave us a little help with that in Matthew 20, 12 and 34, where he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Out of the bounty and overflow and the copious supply of the heart, that is the thoughts and feelings, the love and affections, out of that, the Bible said, the mouth speaketh. What comes out of the mouth becomes a window in the heart of the speaker. You can tell something about what the speaker has on his mind or what is in his heart, but what comes out of his mouth. Because I would be persuaded that you know the heart of a poet by his poetry. And you know the heart of a songwriter by the songs he writes. And you can know the art of the singer by the songs they sing. And you can know the heart of an author by the books he writes. And you can know the heart of a photographer by the pictures they take. You know what his thoughts are. You know what his feelings are, his mind, his essential parts, his innermost vitals, and his love and affection. 
You understand the abundance of his heart by the overflowing passion that he has for things. This is a window in the heart of a man. And if this is true, and I believe it is, then you can know well what is in the heart of a creator by the things he creates. Because out of the abundance of his heart, out of the abundance of the copious amounts of in his heart, that's what comes out of him. And therefore, I understand something about the heart of God by the things that come out of his heart, come out of his mouth. Creation, I think, is a window in the heart of a creator, God. And the crowning achievement of those six days of creation was there in Genesis 1 where he said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, let him have dominion. And male and female, he made them. You understand that. Adam and Eve are really a window in the heart of a creator. God is love and God needs to display itself on likeness. Can't love a mountain or a rainbow or a beast or a fowl. Can't hug a river. Can't come down and have fellowship with a rooster. You need, you, love needs an image. It needs a visual representation. It needs an optical counterpart in order to display its love. God needed that which corresponded to him just as Adam needed Eve. When he didn't have her, it was not good. He needed Eve. God did not send Adam, need Adam, in the sense that he was incomplete without him but that he needed likeness and he needed image to fully display his love. The ultimate love affair is finalized in the book of Ephesians where he writes, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This is the ultimate goal of the creator, to get something that was like him that he could fall in love with and display his love. It is my position that the Songs of Solomon is the script of a drama being played out on the pages of Scripture between the King Jesus and his bride, the church. The Song of Solomon is an explicit, and I reiterate, an explicit love story between a man who is a king and a woman who is admittedly quite inferior to him. She is not like him. She is altogether different than him. In fact, she is so different. She says in the Songs of Solomon 1 and 6, look not upon me, don't even look at me. I don't know how you can stand to look at me. I don't understand how you could even take a moment to gaze in my direction. Don't look at me, she said. Look not at me because I am black because the sun has looked upon me. In bygone days, women are very careful about their, about their physical features. Not any less, I suspect, than they are now, but, uh, uh, you know, look at my luggage, you know that. They're very careful about uh, their features and how they look. And uh, in the bygone days, uh, women would not let the sun shine upon them. They did not want their, their bodies to be touched by the rays of the sun. So they covered themselves completely. I wouldn't mind getting back to that a little bit, but they covered themselves, you know. They didn't want one ray of sun to touch them. And so they wore long sleeves, cleared down. They put gloves on their hands, and they were, their, their collars went all up around their neck. And then they put veils over their face. They put wide-brim hats on them, wore skirts all the way down to their ankles, put cotton, not nylons, but cotton hose on, you know. It covered every square inch of the bodies. Then they put a veil over their face, you know. Then they took a parasol and put that on top of them. 
them, so there was not one ray of sun that could ever touch their bodies. They wanted to be as pasty white as cotton. It's not like that today. I know you lay out in sun, and well, you may not lay out in it, but you get out in it, and well, you lay out in it probably, and, and you know, they get all kinds of stuff to put on them, you know, they, 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 they you know, I remember girls used to, they would take baby oil and put mercurochrome in it. It's like basting a turkey, you know, you get out there and get all basted up with that oil, you know, and, 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 and get a suntan, you know, and the suntan enhances you and makes you look healthy, they think, you know, and they got... They got tanning beds and everything, but in that day, they did not want one ray of sun to touch their bodies. Being white, I'm talking about pasty white. I'm not talking about white like off-white. I'm not talking about summer white or winter white. I'm talking about white, white. They wanted to be white, white, so no ray of sun could ever penetrate their outfits and, 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 and put one mark upon their body. They wanted the whiteness of their body because it made their veins in their arms and legs look blue. Therefore, they were called blue bloods. That meant you were of the hierarchy. You were of the ones who did not have to work outdoors. You had slaves and servants that would do your work for you. And so you were Blue blood, you didn't want a ray of sun to touch you to make it look like you ever stepped out into a cotton patch or you had ever worked a garden or you had ever plowed or you had ever been in a vineyard. They wanted you to look like you were royalty. You were something, you know. You, were, you didn't, had never been out and done a day's work in your stinking life. You were a blue blood. You were, you were white. You were clean. You were pure. You were undefiled. And that was the look that they tried to gain. And they gained it, you know, because you look at their veins and they look blue because they didn't have any tan, they didn't have any color on them, and therefore they referred to as blue bloods. The common person, you know, worked in a field, got suntanned and, 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 and toiling and working below. The sun would burn down upon them, and they were treated with disdain by the blue bloods. They were reproached and rejected and thought of as you know, a lower class people because they actually did a day's work, you know, and they got out in the sun and had to work and come in all suntan. That's what she said. I, I'm black because the sun has touched me. I'm dark because I've worked all my life in vineyards. I had to work in my family's vineyards. I worked in my brother and sister's vineyards. My own vineyard I had had no time for, but I've worked in their vineyards and that's why I look like I look. And I'm sure you don't want to look at me because you look at your other 700 wives and they're pasty white. You look at me and I'm dark. Of course, your other seven wives, the 700 wives, have never hit a lick at a snake. They've never done one stinking thing in their whole lives. There are a bunch of blue bloods over there, and they're all king's daughters. They are princesses. Uh, you know, they got their little tiaras on their head, and here I am, got mine pulled back in a ponytail, you know, trying to keep it out of my eyes while I labor and toil in the vineyards. And, and, and your other 700 wives over here, they're all these glorious-looking, all-together lovely people. They, they walk around and sweep in. They know how to curtsy. They've lived in castles all their lives. Their daddies were kings. Uh, they walk around like they own, uh, you know, like they got corn for sale, my dad would say. You know, nobody ever had no corn for sale in my neck of the woods, but if a man did, he strutted around like he had more corn than he could use. 
These other 700 wives, uh, they're all king's daughters. They're royalty. They've been raised in castles, sleeping in, you know, silk sheets and finery. And they, they, they've never done any work. They've never done any label. They're all, they're all blue bloods, you know. The sun's never touched them. But I'm from below, and they are from above. They live above the sun, and I live down here under the sun. And, and so I, I, I'm black, and I, I've been tanned. And I, I don't know why you would even look at me because I'm so different than your other 700. You got 700 of them now. Now you're wanting 701. Five times her lover is referred to as a king. He's a product of nobility. He's an aristocrat. He's a man of distinction. He has prestige and he has influence. He's a man of power and importance. He sits on the pinnacle of success and authority. And I'm sure Solomon's counselors, when they found out that Solomon was running with this other girl, you got 700. Why do you think you need to be dating this other girl? Why do you want to marry this other girl? You know she's a tramp. You know she's no good. You know she's got no heritage. She's got no lineage. She's got no background. She's got no blue bloods in her life. She doesn't wear a tiara. She got her hair look like she combed it with egg beater. She don't, you know, she don't look good. She don't look nice. She don't know how to take care of herself, you know. She don't know how to curtsy. She don't know how to walk in among the kings and the prestige and walk out. She comes stumbling in in her tennis shoes with a toe sticking out the front of it. She don't, she don't, she don't look like anybody, you know. And I think you can do better than that, Solomon. I think you can do better than that. You've been doing better than that. You brought all these, all these other blue bloods in here, king's daughters and what have you. And now you go out here and find this woman here and she don't look like much. She's been blackened by the sun. She's toiled under the sun all the days of her life. I think you can do better than that. I'm sure his other 700 wives said, don't bring that thing home with you. Don't bring her in this house. Don't come home with her on your arm looking like she's all that. Because she ain't nothing, nothing but an outsider. She don't have no royal blood in her. She don't have anything in her that would compel you to fall in love with her. What is it you see in her? What are you, what are you thinking about when you took her arm? What was going through your mind, Solomon, when you fell in love with a girl that's 180 degrees from everything that you are? When you sat on a throne and she set no place within a vineyard, when she scratches out a living down under the sun and you live above the sun in the hierarchy of the world, you got 700 wives that are all princesses. You got you got 300 concubines of 700 wasn't enough for you. You got 300 concubines over here. You got 1,000 women at your bow. You got 1,000 women. You can't even keep track of their birthdays. You don't even know the anniversaries anymore. Every day is 50 birthdays. Every day is 50 anniversaries. You got to buy a flower farm just to keep them all happy. What are you doing bringing somebody home that's all broke down and all beat up and has no lineage and has no background, has no home, has no nothing. What are you doing? Bring? And Solomon said, I can't help it. I just fell in love with her. I just fell in love with her. I, I, I don't know. I have no reason to bring her home. I got 700 princesses. I got 700 women that were born in a king's house. Did you ever wonder why God fell in love with you? You ever wonder why a great one, one, one greater than Solomon is here? And this is a story about God and his love for his people. 
and his people had nothing to commend themselves to him. They had 700 Israelites at his bidding who thought they were pure bloods and blue bloods, but he fell in love with a little girl that had nothing to offer him, that didn't even think he would ever look at her. But for some reason, she caught his eye. And he had, she had nothing to commend herself to him. That is, I can't sing, I can't dance, I don't have no tiara, I don't have no crown, I got no background, I got no father, I got no mother, I got no genealogy, I got nothing to take me back to a promise. But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, while we had nothing to offer, while we had nothing to give him back, while I had nothing to say, if you take me, I'll give you this or I'll give you that. I was nothing but a tramp without genealogy, without background, without lineage, no connection to Abraham, no hope in the world, just working under the sun, trying to grub out a living. But God commended his love to us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. The Lord said concerning Israel, but they forgot. I did not choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest among people. But because I loved you, that's it. I just loved you. I didn't love you because of anything. I loved you in spite of so many things. I loved you because you were not like the 700 that thought they had it made. I picked you out only because I loved you. Because love tends to cover a multitude of sins. Do you ever try to talk a girl out of marrying a boy when she's in love with him? I mean, a guy dropped out of school at the sixth grade. Ain't got no job. Ain't got no. Ain't got no English either. Ain't got no job. Drives a three-legged dog of a car. Won't start half the time, you know. You have to go pick him up somewhere and bring him gas because he ain't got no money. Dresses like a rodeo clown. She'll sit there and cry, but I love him. For Pete's sake, quit loving him then. Just stop loving him. Man's no good. He's worthless. You'll have to be a mother more than a wife. You have to dress him, feed him, house him, clothe him, bail him out. Your whole life will be nothing but heartache with him. And she'll just cry, but I love him. I love him. You can't talk people out of love. You can't talk them. When they get in love with somebody, you're beating a dead horse there, man. They, they'll, just, they'll just keep on loving him, you know. And all you can point out all their bad and all their, you know. And I'm sure, I'm sure the counselors of Solomon said, Saul, I think you can do better than that. And he'd say, well, but I love her. I just love her. <laughs> so the six verses of these eight chapters contain a descriptive narrative about two people and how they feel about one another. It's a very intimate book about lovers. If you've got, if you've got teenage kids, you need to put a staple these pages together and don't let them read that until they, they turn 18. 
had to take a razor blade cut that section out and just say, we'll, we'll put it back in there when you get a little older. As I said, this ain't vacation Bible school stuff. You don't get a box for vacation Bible school. We're going to study the Psalms of Solomon. That's it. You ain't going to do that. That ain't going to happen. It's not BBS stuff. Ain't BBS stuff. Mm-mm. It's not about it. It's an intimate book. It's about lovers. It's full of passion and feelings and boundless enthusiasm, and unbridled emotions. This is how they each feel towards one another. They describe each other and their anatomical features in detail. At times, it's enough to make you blush because this letter drips with passion. You put your hand on the Song of Solomon and the pages feel hot, feel warm. Now, Revelation don't feel warm. No, it's cold. You get a little further over there, though. It warms up, warms up. That's why you got to be careful. Step lightly. Pick your path very clearly if you're going to read out of that book. You'll get into, you'll get into something that you don't need to be getting into. Because there ain't no other way of saying it the way he said it. Some of you can clean it up a little bit, you know. You say it. It's in King James. You say it in English, you know, and it cleans it up. You can't clean this up. There ain't nothing you can do about it. It's just like it is, you know, just right there. This book starts out like this, and you know it don't do nothing but go downhill from here on. It starts out like this. The bride starts out like this. Usually the bride is the more backward. This girl's not backward. She is not, she's not reclusive. She doesn't step back into the, and wait for him. You know, she's the first speaker in this love affair. She can't even imagine he's looked at her. But when he looked and he put that little smile and showed them ivories a little bit, give that little quick jerk he had to his head, you know. She starts out like this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for they love is better than wine. Now, when it starts out like that, there ain't no place to go much but getting, getting more worser. And it starts out, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. She is saying, I don't want to peck on the cheek. I don't blow me no kiss across the room. I'm not interested in a handshake. Don't say praise the Lord to me. I ain't interested in praise the Lord. I want to kiss, and I want to square on my mouth. Because your kisses are like wine. When you put your lips up against mine, it's intoxicating. And I can't go much further than this, but that's as far as I'm going to go with it. I want to seal the deal. I want to finalize the vow. I love you. You love me. Let's get going. Give me a kiss on my mouth because it intoxicates me. I think she's already liquored up. You ain't even got the kiss yet, you know. But she's already getting all, she's getting all excited, you know. She's, I mean, love is, love is in the air here, you know. And she ain't starting out with like, let's court a little bit. Let's, you know, let's hold hands maybe, you know. Let's go to church and, you know. She just starts out with a, wanting to get drunk get intoxicated she's head over heels in love there ain't nothing you can do about it she said because the savor 
of thy good ointment. Thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, the do the virgins love you. She said, when somebody says your name, it's like they just opened a bottle of perfume. And the, the fragrance just flows out of the bottle. It goes all over everything, you know. It drowns out every other. They could be cooking cabbage in there. But somebody says your name, it covers it all up, you know. And I don't care what kind of stink may be in the room. When you say your name, it's like ointment that's been poured forth. It's like perfume that oozes out and just fills the atmosphere. It fills the room, you know. And it, it, just the mention of your name, it produces a fragrance that is irresistible. It causes me to want to run after you. Wow, this is getting the heavy stuff right here. I want to run after you just hearing your name. It's true love. Her lover is in her sight and the chase is going to be on pretty soon. You know, when you first get the Holy Ghost, somebody can start talking about Jesus. You get all excited, you know. Just say his name. That's enough for you right there. Just say the name of Jesus. And suddenly, your heart starts palpitating. Suddenly, you get all excited about God again, you know. You begin to think about his name. His name is like opening up ointment, and it just fills the room with the ointment, you know. It's, it's just a glorious thing when you're young love, when you first fall in love with him, you know. Then later on, well, things cool off a little bit. Pages get colder. You get off in beasts and two-headed creatures coming out of the water and horns on them. And, and you forget all about Jesus and how you love him and what he means to you and how precious his name is to you. How you love that name. Call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The Bible says, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. This little girl here is a Gentile. She don't have no heritage. She don't have no genealogy. You can't trace her ancestry back to anywhere. She has nothing but an embarrassment for her genealogy. She's, she has a history she has to get over. This is not something she wants to publicize. That's why you get in the Bible, you don't get a lot of Gentile dispensations or Gentile heritages. They have nothing but a heartache and despair in their background. It's something they got to get over. But she says, when you start saying the name of Jesus, I get excited. I get thrilled by his name because in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Therefore, then Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, he said, sometimes you and I have to remember that there was nothing in our lives that commended us to God. You may think, some of you probably think God got a real good deal when he got you. Because you got talent and you're gifted, or so you think that way, you know. You're gifted and you're talented and you're cute, you know. Or you're handsome or you got all this going for you. You got a great personality, you know. And you know how to do the rhythm and the gyrate when you sing. You, you know how to do everything, you know. You can play the guitar, you can play the piano. You can just lay one thing down, pick up another thing, you know. But he said, listen, you need to remember that you ain't being in times past were Gentiles in the flesh who by the... Uh, uh, who are called uncircumcision by the other 700 wives that he had. That at that time, you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how when God found you, you had no hope in this world. I don't care how talented you were or gifted you were or how great you may have been in your own eyes, you had no God in this world. You had no hope, you were without any promise, you had nothing in this world that would commend God to you. 
but, a conjunctive word, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now you've taken his name, now you have a genealogy, now you have a heritage, and when you first met him, you didn't think he would give you a second glance. But he fell in love with you. That's it. He fell in love with you, not your gift, not your talent, not your abilities. He fell in love with you. He loved you. You had nothing to offer him. He had seven other princesses. He did not need you. But he knew you needed him, and he fell madly in love with you. In this whole thing, the bride is nameless. She's called a Shulamite in a couple places, but Shulamite is a pet name like sweetheart, sugar plum, apple blossom, whatever you call your wife. <laughs> Honey. Well, you, you look at me like you don't have a name for your wife. I'm talking about a good name for your wife. I'm talking about a proper name for your wife. Sweetheart. Sweetheart's a good name. Shulamite's like, sweetheart. Don't look at your wife and say Shulamite because I don't even know what it means. It, it, it may, you may be, with Solomon's vocabulary, it couldn't mean anything, you know. And, and so he, you know. But she took a name when we saw that baptism going up there, going down that watery grave in Jesus' name. Under what were you baptized? There was a merging that took place when he went down in that watery grave. And that glorious name of Jesus is like an ointment. Therefore, it is a holy ointment, the Bible said. And it is a precious ointment, the Bible said. This is a precious name, and it is a holy name. This name is prescriptive because it was made in the apothecary. Therefore, it is a prescription. It is a name put together for as a prescription. It is prescriptive. Therefore, you can use this name if anybody's sick or afflicted or broken down or beat up or chained or in bondage or in addictions you can use this name because it's prescriptive it's put together in the apothecary it was blended together you can't make any more like it you're not supposed to use it on yourself you use it on diseases and afflictions and all manner of things and God is the healer of all our diseases and the devil fears it and and, and demons flee it and and diseases actually honor it and death obeys it and nature pays homage to it and angels worship it and heaven declares that it is a name above every name. Therefore, when they open up that name, it's like an ointment that comes out. It's like a perfume that fills the land. The unfolding of your name is as the opening of perfume. Just say his name and, and lovers get goosebumps that love his name. Young people fall in love, and boys especially, they, they carve their girlfriend's name on a tree or carve it in a picnic table. You hardly get a picnic table at a park. Don't have somebody's name in there they love, you know. And Like I cared about that. I'm interested in who you love. I'm trying to eat a meal. <laughs> in high school, we had a bookstore where you could go buy used books. We always bought used ones because it was cheaper. Invariably, students would... Right, their girlfriend or the boyfriend on the, in the book here, on the pages of the book across here. We couldn't erase it, you know. So we tried to buy a book that was owned by a boy because at least it didn't have a girl's name on it, you know. Like, I love Susie or I love Fred. Or, or not Fred, but I love Susie. <laughs> I didn't want no book that said I love John on it. Somebody take you behind the bleachers in the gym, beat your brains out, you know, for that kind of stuff. Of course, right now that's in fashion, you know, but... Uh, Back in that day, we didn't, want no, we didn't want no book that had a boy's name on it as a boy, you know. And uh, 
we look for that kind of a book previously owned by another boy. It didn't matter what the girl's name was, you know. It just I mean, it really didn't matter because, you know, no boy wanted a book declaring I love John. Because when you're in love, no matter the conversation, people always wind it back around to the one you love. You know, you, you talk to somebody that's in love, and they're a little goofy anyway. It's a form of insanity, I think, that, that gets a hold of you, you know. And, of course, you know, it, it puts you in a mental, you're a mental cripple right now. You can't deal with life. Uh, as it's a sickness, because twice she says, I'm lovesick, you know. It's a sickness. It's like a disease. I don't think it'll be cast out of you, but it's, you can try, you know. <laughs> but uh, when you're talking to somebody in love, it's all they want to talk about, you know. It's all they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about anything serious. They just talk about John, you know, and, and you get sick of it, you know. They're not good listeners, because all the time you're talking, they're thinking about John, you know, or whatever, and, and they're going to try to take the conversation, wind it back around. They, they, they take the simplest thing you say and wind it all back around, you know, to get to talk about the one they love. It don't matter. You can, you can say, you know, we just had a new toilet put in our house, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know it's, it's got a comfort height to it, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's got a water saver, and it's a quiet flush, and we're very proud of it, you know, and, and she'll say, you know, that reminds me of my John. And she'll say, I mean, she just, she just turn it all around, you know. They turn it all around. You say, he's so quiet when I'm around him, you know. I'm so comfortable with him, you know, when I'm around him, you know. And his face looks like it was chiseled out of porcelain. And, uh, you know, when I kiss him, his eyes water, but then his face flushes, so it all works out, you know. So, you know, it, it, don't, matter, it don't matter where you go with somebody in love. If they're in love, they can make a toilet look like John. They can make, they can make the worst thing you can think of, and it's going to be perfect. That's just how you're in love, you know. You can't convince them. Don't, don't be talking about your, your, your husband with somebody's commode, you know. But they're in love, you know, and everything reminds them of the person they love, you know. They twist the conversation, contort it, pull its joints out to get it to, so they can talk about the one they love, you know. Let me get out of this mess over here. Let me get somewhere else. She says, draw me and we will run after you. Give me a call and I'll come running. Say you want me and I'll be there. I'll never forget your times together. I, I relive them every day. Because I love you so much, it's hard to be away from you. I miss you when you're not here. I sleep with my phone in my hand. You know, Sister Oswald and I, we fell in love, and it was pathetic. We fell in love, and we ran out of stuff to talk about. So we just laid the receiver up to our ear and listened to one another breathe over the phone. What's that all about? You know, I don't know. Looking back on it, it sounds goofy, you know, but when you're in love, nothing's goofy because you're insane to begin with. It's a, you're mentally, mental crippling with me, you know. And so we listen to one another breathing now. When you're going to call again, call me. Don't forget, I'll be waiting. I'll look at your picture and dream about our next date. He reread his notes and sleep at the Barry one for you at the state fair. You can still smell his cologne. It's all you talk about. He's become your world. You don't need anybody else. You live for his call and time creeps by waiting to see your lover again. Your love is for him is all consuming. You got no room for anyone else. You know, uh, I, I, I remember Kelly, she had a good friend and a good friend got a boyfriend and started dating and is going to get married. And, 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 and her good friend dropped her like a stick of snow wood. You know, it wasn't, I mean, she ain't going to, you don't need no friends when you're in love. You'll drop your best friends and start, you know, all you can think about is the one you love. You don't care about anybody else. 
And it kind of hurts sometimes when folks drop you so quick for some, some boy. And, but that's the way it is. Or a, a, a boy drop his friends for a girl, you know. It's all you talk about. It's all you live for. You're waiting for your lover. You, 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 you just, you just you're consumed with him. Your calendar's been canceled of all other dates. I've got no appointments. I've got no meetings. got no interests. got no hobbies. You know, just you. She's lost her appetite for food. She don't eat. She don't drink. She's now consumed with her lover. She sits on the edge of her seat anticipating their next rendezvous. She rushes to the phone and the doorbell just in case it might be him. Her, her couch is scattered with bride magazines. She's picking out flowers and talking about colors and talking about songs they're going to sing. She primps and fixes her hair. She dresses every day just in case he might call for a date. It's in him she lives and moves and she has her very being. The Song of Solomon is divided into six verses of a song. And in the first verse of the song, the bride is running after her lover. At just the mention of his name, she's totally consumed with him. Her life in a love fest. She cannot live without him. In chapter 2, in verse 8, contains the second verse of the song. And things have changed somewhat. It's the voice of my beloved, she says. Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains and, and skipping upon the hills. You know, he lives in another part of the country. He don't live in her neighborhood. He live, he's a king. He lives someplace else. She lives over on the backside of the tracks. She lives over, I'm guessing every place has got a bad side of town. She lives on the bad side of town. How, you know, because she's got a wall around her house. He lives on the bad side of town, and uh, uh, he's got to come quite a ways because he lives on the other side of the mountains. At least that's what the scripture says here. But holy he cometh, leaping up on the mountains and, and skipping on the hills. You can tell he can't wait. He's got a breath full of mints and, and, and icebreakers, and he's got a pocket full of them, you know. He checks his breath about every 20 feet, about like David dancing before the ark every little bit. He gets out of his car, out of his office, not his car, but gets out of his chariot. I'm sure he's driving a chariot. Got the top down, got it all washed, got it all cleaned up. Got one of them little pine things hanging around the rearview mirror, <laughs> fragrance things, you know, so she won't be offended by. <clears throat> he must have got his driver's education from Jehu because he's driving furiously evidently he's, he's, he's skipping across the mountains and coming across the hills and he got his car all washed and got it all taken care of and he throws caution to the wind he's a lover on a mission you know, he, he's going after the one he loves and she recognizes his voice from the very beginning I mean he's hollering all the way from the tops of the mountains I'm on my way I mean, he's screaming to the top of his lungs to let her know he's on his way. She recognized his voice long before he arrived. There's no question, this is my lover that, that has come calling for me. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He's come to the wall, he's come to a barricade. But mountains don't stop him and hills don't stop him and a wall ain't gonna stop him because he's come after his lover. He's running with all he's got. He's gonna get to her regardless of what he's gotta go through or what he's gotta withstand. He's gonna break down every barrier. He's gonna come across everything that might stand in his way. There'll be no obstructions that will separate him from his love. He climbs over the wall, breaks through the barriers because his love is unstoppable. He is in love and no one can understand it. He thought she would have come out to meet him by now. Did she not hear him coming? So he begins to look in the windows. He checks out the living room, checks out the dining room, 
I'm sure Salma check out the bedroom. They've been looking in the windows. Anybody in there? It's me. I'm here. Not a sound. Just the verse before that. At the mention of his name, she come running. He's like ointment poured forth. When I smell that fragrance, I know it's him. But now something has happened. His name has lost his fragrance. And she doesn't show up. He calls and he begs and he pleads and he looks in the windows trying to get her attention. Where could she be? I told her I was coming. She heard my voice from the mountaintop. I have everything ready. She knows it's me, but maybe she doesn't know it's me. Maybe she thinks it's a beggar or salesman. So he shows himself through the lattice. Let her see that it's really me. I'm here. Still not a sound. I wonder where she's at. I wonder what's happened. He begins to, the Bible says he shows himself through the lattice. So there's no doubt it's him. There's no question. And she says, it's him. I see him through the lattice. He doesn't try to hide himself. He's not ashamed of me. He feels the same about me as I've always felt about him. He's pacing back and forth from window to window, hoping for a glimpse of his lover. He's a lover seeking the love of his life. His eyes are searching for a glimpse. He scours every room, pursuer on a quest. Here's the strange thing. As I said in the first verse, the relationship, she had come running at the mention of his name. She hears his voice. She sees him through the lattice. And she says, when I hear your name, nothing will stop me from coming to you. At the window, she does not come running, but rather ignores and shuns him in all of his advances. Something inexplainable has happened. From the abundance of the heart, the Bible said the mouth speaketh. The 10th verse says, my beloved speaks and says to me, rise up my love, my fair one, and let's get away. I cannot see her, but he refuses to give up, so he speaks. This is his heart talking. Come on, my love. Let's get away for a while. Let's just go someplace where we can be alone and enjoy each other. I desperately want to be with you. I need you. I love you. His voice trails off crying. I miss you. For lo, the winter's past. The rain is gone. There's no reason for you not to come out. It's not cold out. It's not raining out. The flowers appear on the earth. It's the time of the singing of the birds. The voice of the turtle is heard in the land. Fig tree poured forth fruit. The green figs and the vines with the tender grapes have a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. It's early spring. It's, it, it, it's the latter rain, so stop. The flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. The trees and vines are, are springtime. Get up. Get up. Let's get away. Let's enjoy this beautiful time of the year. Young love is always the springtime of the year. The birds are singing. The flowers are blooming. The trees and the vines are bringing forth. Birds are building their nests. It's a time of beauty and, and splendor in any relationship. He presents a very good reason for her to get up and come out. Verse 14 gives some explanation of her lover's frustration. O oh, my dove, thou art in the cleft of the rocks, in the secret place of the stairs. Do you have some secret place you go? 
Do you have a way to get away from me when I come when you don't want to see me? Do you have some secret stairs you can climb? Do you have some cleft in a rock someplace that you can go to so you don't have to deal with me? Are there secret stairs and clefts of rocks that you have when I come to your house and you don't want to deal with me? You just don't answer the door and you hide yourself in some secret stairs in the cleft of a rock. See, it's not enough to hear his voice. Not enough to hear his voice. You have to obey his voice. Hearing without obedience only breaks the heart of lovers. I long to see you. I just want to hear your voice. I want you to be with me today. I long for your presence. I crave your affections. I just need to know that you're still mine and you still love me. I can't stand this absence of you in my life. I need you here. I have a void without you. I'm incomplete without you and your love. Without you, there is no springtime. And the birds are wasting their music. And the flowers, their fragrance. Oh, my dove, do you have some secret stairs someplace that you can escape me? Is there a cleft in a rock? Do you have a mountain cave that you go to? It's as though you've barricaded yourself away from me. It seems you've hid yourself in some secret hideaway place, some secret stairs, some private place. You've concealed yourself, hidden your eyes, and become deaf to my voice. You can almost hear the heartbreak of a young lover. What have I done? Talk to me. I just want to see you. Don't you love me anymore? Have you found someone else? Yesterday you said the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are fir. You said our love would endure forever. Our relationship was sure. You would always love each other. Nothing would ever come between us. Other love affairs would come and go, but ours was as strong and fragrant as cedar. It's no one for me but you. But alas, his name has lost its fragrance. And the flame on the candle of her desire is flickering. And the oil in the lamp of love is simply running low. It's at this juncture of the love story that he brings up little foxes and tender grapes. Don't you know? Don't you know that little foxes, little things like private stairs, and hiding places. Don't you know it's little foxes that mess the vines up? He said, our grapes or our relationship is tender. It's not stainless steel. I want you to listen to me. Get quiet as you want to get. This relationship, this marriage bond, 
this bride and groom, he says, our relationship is tender. It's tender grapes. When the blossom falls from the grape, there's a little bud that peeks out. Just a little bud. It's going to become a grape, but it's not one yet. It's becoming something. That's what the little fox is like. That very tender little bud just peeks out from the stem. The little foxes love to eat that. It's not a big thing. It's just a little thing that destroys relationships. I know you think your relationship with God, nothing could ever affect that. I love you, God. Ain't nothing ever going to I'm, I'm going to backslide my life. I'll always love you. I'll always be there for you. Then something happens. Our love affair is tender. It's easily bruised. It's delicate. It's sensitive. It's sentimental. It's easily broken. It's easily damaged. Its relationship is tender. Quite often love relationships being tender are easily affected. Our relationship is not cast iron. It's tender. Now you, my love, may think it's a small thing for me to come to your house, let you hear my cry, show myself through the lattice, and you not come out. That may be a small thing to you. It may be a small thing for a springtime to come and birds to sing and flowers to bloom, and you have no interest. You may think it's a small thing for me to want to be with you and you only, and you reject my overtures. You may even think it's a small thing for you to display, for you to play with my emotions and toy with my feelings and play hard to get. You may think it's a small thing to hide from me and hear my pleading voice and refuse to come when I call. You may think it's a small thing to have secret stares carry you out of my sight and away from my pleading voice. You may think it's a small thing to treat me like some inconvenience in your life as though you had other things to do. But be assured of this, my love. It's those little things that destroy our relationship and break the bonds in the hearts of lovers. Generally, it's not some major event, not some major relationship breaking that breaks the heart of lovers. Generally, it's not some major failure or catastrophic event. It's some little thing like not listening to my voice, not talking to me, not communing with me, not come when I call it. Some little thing that touches the delicate part of our relationship and breaks the bond that we had together. Well, small foxes and tender grapes cannot exist together on the same vine. Sometimes little things just spoil everything. Even after rejecting his invitation, she is still sure of their relationship, like some backsliders are. They're still sure, well, he loves me, you know. He loves me, and there's nothing we can do to ever get his love away from me. They're talking about their relationship. God so loved the world. That's exactly right. He did so love the world. She says, my beloved is mine, and I'm his. I know we still belong to one another. Said he, he, he feedeth among the lilies. I know where he feeds his flock out. I know, the, I know the address of the church. I got the pastor on speed dial, you know. And any time I want to see him again, I'll just call the pastor, or I'll come over there to the church, you know, and the pastor pastor will preach a good sermon, and I'll come to the altar, and everything will be okay, because I know where he feeds at. I know where he takes his flock at. I know how to get in touch with him again, because he still loves me, and I still love him. But some of us need a reminder of the one seldom-known attribute of God, and I'm closing. 
In Exodus 34, he said, Behold, I'll make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as not have been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou shalt art shall see the work of the Lord, for he is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe that that which I command thee this day, behold, I drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perseites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I'm driving them out because I have a covenant with you, and I do not have a covenant with them. Listen to me. I'm close. I do not have a covenant with these people. I may love them, but I don't have a covenant with them. It's not that I don't love them. I don't have a covenant with them. They're not my bride. But with you, I have vows, I have a covenant, I have a contract, I have a binding agreement with you, I have a promise, I have a commitment on my part and your part. I have a vow and a commitment to you. I love these people, but I'm going to drive them out from you because I don't have a covenant with them. He said, take heed to yourself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where thou goest, lest it be for a snare in, in, in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, bring down their images, and cut down their groves. And here's the reason why. For thou shalt worship no other god. Thou shalt worship no other god. I will not be in a triangle with you. I will, not be in a, I will not allow somebody to alienate my affections from you. I will not play some second fiddle in your life. I will not be a part of your life. I'll have all of you or I will have none of you because I'm in covenant with you and you need to understand this about me. I know you know I'm I'm your provider. I know you. I am your protector. I am your war winner. I am your warrior. I am all those things because I'm in covenant with you. But when I give it a covenant with you, I want you to know there's another side of me that you may not know. For he says, after that, you destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves. Thou shalt work no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. He's only jealous of those that he's in covenant with because he loves them, gives him a right to be jealous of you. I won't stand for you hobnobbing around with another God. I will not tolerate another God in your life. I will not put up with somebody coming into your life. I will not tolerate you dating another God because I, my name is jealous. It's not that I've got a jealous streak in me. I don't now and then have a jealous mind. My name is jealous. My nature, the essence of who I am is jealousy. So don't mess with me. Because I'm not talking about loving the world. I'm not talking about loving the world. I'm talking about now we're in covenant. So take heed to yourself. This holy ghost bride needs to remember that the name of the man who loves her is in covenant with her. You're married to a man whose name is jealous. Do you take jealous to be your lawful wedded husband? Because you marry him, his name is jealous. His nature is jealous. He won't tolerate other gods. That's why I say I've been covenant with you and I'll drive out the person because I'm not jealous of them. I'm not jealous of Hollywood. I don't care who they run with. I don't care who many babies they have or how many different men. I don't care where they are right now. I don't care if they run the streets and live like dogs. I don't care why because I have no covenant with them. The only person I'm jealous of is sitting right over there in that seat over there because her and I are in covenant together. He may not be jealous of the world. He loves the world, but he's in covenant with his bride. When he's in covenant with his bride, he said, my name is jealous. So don't be bringing no more gods in your house. I'm intolerant of disloyalty. I will not tolerate disloyalty. I will not be displayed by a rival. He demands exclusive loyalty. It will not tolerate infidelity with his bride. 
He'll not play second fiddle in your life. Some who have been convinced with God, with God, console themselves with God still loves me. Therein lies the danger. He still loves you because that's what produces jealousy. He loves you. Therefore, he is jealous over the gods in your life. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't care. Because he does love you, you're married to a man whose name is Jealous. Now your relationship has become domestic. That's a dangerous place when there are domestic problems. Police hate to get the call of a domestic problem. Chances are somebody's going to get hurt. There's been an intrusion somewhere. Most domestic problems take place in the home. Don't call them to the liquor store. We've got a domestic problem at the liquor store. Got a domestic problem in Hollywood. You need an entire police force just to patrol Hollywood. Domestic problems with this. Ain't no domestic problems. Home, where there are vows, commitments, people supposed to love one another. All of a sudden, there's an intrusion of a third party, and you've got domestic problems. Stand with me. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But you can make him jealous. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Just means that all he's gone through to get to you, all he put up with to get you, when you were nothing, and he come running for you, you didn't even want him to look at you because you had too many faults and failures. And his other 700 wives says, I think you can do better than that. I'm sure the angels thought when they looked at what Jesus was coming after, said, you know, I think you can do better than that. I think you could do better than that. I, I wonder, I wonder if the angels ever looked down at the church and say, Lord, I think you could have done better than that. They got other gods, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But you're living a life now as the bride. And your life is domestic. It's domestic. It's not worldly. It's domestic. God so loved the world to give them a chance to be saved. Once you become a part of the bride, now it's domestic. Now that it's about vows. It's about commitment. It's about dedication. Until the day break and the shadows flee away. She says, turn, my beloved, and be like a rower, young heart, and move upon the mountains of Bethlehem. Don't leave me. Don't turn. Turn around and come back. Turn around and come back. Though I failed to come when you called, you turn around, come back. He loves me so much that I'll have another chance to respond to his call. I'll cry out, I'll come from my hiding place, descend the secret stairs, and he'll come back. By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets in the broadways, and I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, 
but I found him not. It's a sad story to a love song. I sought him, couldn't find him. Turn around, she says, and come back to me. I'll leave my secret stairs in my private place if you'll just turn around and come back. Got a jealous God on your hands. Jealous of your life. Jealous of your coming and goings. Because all of them start out, I can't live without you. I can't live without you. Got to have you. In him I live and move and have my being. But if you're not careful, another God will slip in. And the next thing you know, he won't play second fiddle. And he goes domestic on you. My name is Jealous. I will not tolerate unfaithfulness. What I went through to get you, I went over mountains. I climbed through valleys. I busted through walls. I looked in windows. I paced back and forth. I gave you every reason in the world. I begged you. I pleaded with you. You heard my voice. You saw my face. I showed myself through the lattice. I give you every reason. The rain is over. The cold is gone. The weather is perfect. All I wanted you to do was take some time with me. But you didn't have time then. And you thought you could come back to the place where I fed among the lilies, my flocks. You could have me any time you wanted me. You asked me to turn around, but I didn't turn. And now you're seeking me on your bed. But I'm gone. She finally found him. I'm in. She finally found him. She looked for him. She found him. She walked the streets. She talked to the watchman. She said, for a little while, I passed from him, and I found him whom my soul loved. She said, I, I, I wrapped my arms around him, and I would not let him go. I would not let him go. I brought him back to my mother's house in the chamber of where I was conceived. She said, I brought him back to my mother's house, and I took him to the chamber. Where I was conceived. I took him to the altar where I got the Holy Ghost. I took him back to the place where he conceived in my heart. And I told him how much I loved him. I said, I ain't gonna never let you go again. I ain't gonna never let you go again. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I ain't gonna never let you go again. I'm gonna hold on to you for what you've done for me and how much you went through for me. Sing it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. No shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So all you won't get down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. No shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. I think what a just receive the word right now. You just fall in love with him again right here. 
could fall in love with him again right here. Oh Jesus! Oh stop the music now and I'd like you to just in your way not our same old words but I would like for us if you want to get on your knees if you want to sit down just for a moment